Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Gentiana saponaria, or harvest bells. Even though another common name is soapwort gentian, because the leaves of this plant resemble that of saponaria the soaports, I prefer the name harvest bells because it speaks to their seasonality of blooming late in autumn and their charm. This plant is fairly unassuming until it comes into flower at the end of the growing season as the flower buds swell. The petals, when ready for pollination, become a brilliant cobalt blue and remind me of those chunky Christmas light bulbs we see around the holidays. They are also closed at the top, so a bee actually has to force its way into the flower to access the goods inside. And, once the flower ages, the petal color changes to purple, likely communicating to pollinators that the bloom is done, and finally changes to brown before releasing the thin, papery seed. Consistently moist soils are important for long-term plant health. In fact, here in East Texas, the only place we really see harvest bells are right alongside streams and in wet areas. Hardy in zones 4 through 8, this is a great native perennial to add to your landscape. You can find this plant and many more at your local garden center and favorite mail-order nursery. Hello, Plantastic peeps, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared, and for this episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Abra Lee to the show. Abra Lee is a rising star in the world of horticulture. She is a storyteller, horticulturist, and author of the forthcoming book, Conquer the Soil, Black America and Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers. As she says, she has spent a whole lot of time in the dirt as a municipal arborist and airport landscape manager. Her work has also been featured in publications including the New York Times, Fine Gardening, and Veranda Magazine. Abra is a graduate of Auburn University College of Agriculture, and she is an alumna of the Longwood Gardens Society of Fellows, a global network of public horticulture professionals that we talk about more on the show. You can learn more about Abra at her website, Conquer the Soil, that's C-O-N-Q-U-E-R-T-H-E-S-O-I-L.com, on Instagram at Conquer the Soil, and on Twitter at Conquer the Soil again. Throughout this conversation, you'll quickly see that Abra is a horticulturist who loves history and bringing stories to life. And we have a lively conversation talking about her unique approach of enriching the world of horticulture with her contagious enthusiasm. As always, you can follow along on the show notes at theplantasticpodcast.com. Now, enjoy this fun and thought-provoking episode with Abra. Hi, Abra, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on today. 
Thank you, Jared. I am thrilled to be here. And I love the name Plantastic. It sounds so fun. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I love your name. And also, I'm so happy to hear your Georgia accent this afternoon. So you're going to make my Tennessee accent come out some more. (laughs) I love it. Our neighbor to the north. I know. Can I just say something about Tennessee? Yeah. I was in Nashville in September. And I got to tell you, outside, not that it's the Olympics or a comparison, but I don't even feel like the rich culture from middle to eastern to western Tennessee has been explored deeply enough. Y'all up there, it is so, I'm just blown away every time I go. I mean, truly, just the music, the food, the everything. And outside of Louisiana, I'm like, is there another state in the whole United States that compares to this just hitting on all cultural angles there? So I am a Tennessee super fan and stan. Yeah, I die on my Southern Hill, but Tennessee <laughs> does have my heart. So yeah. Yeah, it was a great state to live in. And we, ha- I lived in Western Tennessee growing up, but then we went to Middle Tennessee, like you said, Nashville and Memphis. Well, Memphis was West, but, but okay. then the Smokies, the Smokies are near and dear to my heart. I mean, my parents yeah. are there. My parents are there yeah. right now. And so, yeah, I agree. But barbecue and soul yes. music and rock and roll and great plants. Basically, Tennessee was where I got my horticulture roots started too, from Carol Reese and Jason Reeves and other people getting to know them. So yeah, yeah Tennessee is a rich state. And I agree. It is. And this has nothing to do, and I know we're supposed to talk about plants, but so my <laughs> two f- big highlights of the trip were the Country Music Museum, Hall of Fame. Oh okay. My yeah, sure. That was yeah. not the right word to say. But <laughs> My favorite thing in there was the rhinestone, the fashion, the rhinestone. Yes, race. yes. <laughs> the cars, who knew? Right, Just right. So over the top, so extraordinary. It's beyond Southern, Super Tennessee. And then yeah. I think it opened last year, but I went to the National Museum of African-American Music. It hmm. is the best museum I've ever been in my life. Wow. It is so good. And it's, it's in Nashville? Yeah, it's okay. two blocks up, I think, from the Country Music Hall of Fame. and. Okay. It's something when you walk in, you think, I remember thinking, oh, I got to sit through a movie. It was one of the best movies I've ever seen in that 15 minutes. And then when they open the doors and you see the actual museum, it'll blow your mind. It's okay. You need two full hours, but you really need like four. But anyway, I digress. No. Yeah. Nashville's such a rich city. So, and then the Botanic Gardens, they got Cheekwood. And, and, we went to and then yep. the Parthenon, the Parthenon's really cool to see downtown too. Like where they built like the replica of the Greek Parthenon. So that was fascinating too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I did go to Chico, but I don't know if I went by the, I would have, I couldn't have missed yeah. it. So I must not have seen it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Wow. So how's your garden growing? So my garden right now is not growing because I am in transition phase. I think I've shared this before with you. I live in a condo and my mom, who I care to for, she lives with me. She has dementia. So Right now, I don't have a plant thing going on. However, I will be moving back into my childhood home, which is, it's on an acre and a half, which is a lot for living inside of the city limits, but not a lot elsewhere. But it's all trees. It's a complete woodland garden. I'll probably be moving in spring of 2023. And I cannot wait because it's it's just how you talked about growing up in Tennessee. I love that house and I cannot believe that I'm that's going to be my forever home moving forward. So we need to have a part two of this come summer 
2023. So I can tell you how wonderful my garden is growing. That sounds great. In Southwest Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. That's such a blessing to return to your childhood home and just because there's so much history and stuff there. So it is. We're renovating it because she has different physical needs now and she can't live there alone. And I said, I volunteer as tribute. We're going to get her back in her house. And uh, when I say we, my siblings, and I will be leaving my condo behind and I cannot wait because it's so, so pretty. Yeah, I've lived in those transitory periods too, where you don't really have a garden and you just end up doing containers. And it's hard because I'm, I miss getting my hands in the soil and the day-to-day plant interactions. And so I, in fact, it's funny, I just wrote a blog post on it, but I mean, I was basically living in either an apartment or rental house for like nine years. And then finally, when we bought our house, it was just like everything in the ground because I'm so tired of watering. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just where I am in life now. And um, yeah. It's a roller coaster of life, but I guess certain arcs that you have, but I am getting right back into my green phase and I'm going to be there permanently. So I cannot wait. Because I think there's audience members out there too. They're in the same space transitioning. So yeah. 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 So at the beginning of the Plantastic podcast, I always like to ask people, where did their passion for horticulture and plants germinate? Could you share that with us today? So I will say this. I am a legacy child of horticulture. And what I mean by that, I did not realize it until later on where my passion germinated. And when I think about my childhood, I told you growing up in this beautiful home where it's a hundred trees in the yard. But when I was a child, my dad was director of parks for the city of Atlanta. So I spent my weekends riding around with him, checking out all these parks in Atlanta. And Atlanta is a very tree heavy city. And then when we weren't doing that on the weekends, my parents would take us to Barnesville where my mother grew up on her family farm and my great aunt Lois lived there up into her nineties. She passed away about almost 10 years ago. And I say that because those two places, deep dirt road country, rural Georgia mixed with Atlanta and the hills and the streets and the trees were where I found my passion for horticulture. And I went on to major in horticulture, become a horticulturist, as you know, at Auburn University. However, I didn't go there for that reason. It never occurred to me that I would be in the plant world. And I talk about my dad being director of parks for the city of Atlanta. But what I thought his job was, Jared, growing up was politicking because we would run into Maynard Jackson, who was the first black mayor of Atlanta at City Hall. I might run into John Lewis, the congressman who recently passed away. Wow, that's awesome. Like, no, I was yeah. bumping into all of these civil rights leaders who had come out of the late the 60s and 70s and had lived it. So I didn't realize that a director of parks actually dealt with plants. I was like, my dad's always, what's it, hobnobbing with the political elites of Atlanta, Andrew Young. And I'm not doing this a name drop. I'm just doing it to give mm-hmm. context sure. to your audience. No, that's fine. Yeah. And then with Barnesville, and we go there on the weekends, I thought everybody stayed in the city during the week and went to their country home with the cows and the pasture and the swept yard on the weekend. So I was just living as you are as a child and a teenager and not understanding that experience was having this impact on my life that would honestly impact it to this day where I'm in my what 20, 22nd year of a career in horticulture. So that's where the seeds germinated. I know I took you on a long journey, but I just wanted to let y'all know how it all started. Yeah, no, that's great. I love details as people who listen to the podcast know. I mean, like I love to get into the weeds about things. So yeah. yeah, you mentioned swept yards. I know what that means being here from the South, but could you expand on that a little bit? 
yours. So my Aunt Lois's farm in Barnesville, it was a 28-acre farm. So the farm is there, and then there's the yard, which surrounds the house, and then the garden is in the yard. And what I mean by swept yard, she would come down those steps, and there was this path of dirt that pretty much led from where we parked, which was in between some oak trees and a red cedar tree. There was just this little parking area. Mm-hmm. And this dirt path led from her front door out to where we parked and where the chicken coop was. And that was where she swept the yard. And when I say she swept the yard, she would sweep this dirt path so the chickens would come by and put their little chicken prints. And as soon as they did, she would sweep that. <laughs> and that is part of, it was so, it's so funny. Looking back, it's very therapeutic. I mean, yeah. I never, it was just, even watching her do it was amazing. And on days it was rain, she might lay out a rug. But when I talk about the swept yard, that is something that you certainly see more overwhelmingly. And I hate to say it, it's a banishing art form in rural Southern areas, but it's part of Black America holding on to their Africanisms and holding on to those things that their ancestors did before they crossed the Middle Passage and were brought here in bondage and things like that, where you take a broom and you sweep the yard and you get rid of. In her case, it was more about cleanliness. It was really that. It was, well, the chickens have come through. They've made a mess. They dropped things. Weeds are pulling up. She might pull weeds out of there. So for her case, it was aesthetic. For some people, it may be sweeping away bad omens, bad spirits. It may be a protection mechanism for some of these folks. Even for her back then, footprints. So she knew somebody had come by. You see what I mean? By Mm -hmm. keeping it swept. So a swept yard is just part of this really, I call it, I call it a folk garden tradition, if you will. People in our world, Jared, say African-American vernacular landscape, but it's just part of an American garden history that should be celebrated. And I honestly think is retained overwhelmingly by Black Americans and by proximity. Where else I sweep, see sweep, swept yards were in poorer white neighborhoods in these rural communities like Barnesville. You see them there too, because They're living on the other side of the railroad tracks. They had less money. So they're pretty much getting their ideas for their garden from black people. So that was pretty cool to see as well. Mm -hmm. And then there were no plants pretty much growing in that space either, right? It was just basically swept soil, right? Swept soil, swept, in our case, dirt, red, Georgia clay, but it was dried out. So, Yeah. 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 No, I think it's a fascinating practice whenever I first heard about it. And again, I know not everybody's from the South. So thank you for elaborating on that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. And it's something that you talked about the garden I'm moving into. I'm trying to figure out ways to retain some of them. I talked about my Aunt Lois retaining her Africanism. She probably saw her mama do it and her grandmama do it. But Mm -hmm. I think about how even I would incorporate that into the garden of the home I'm moving into would I? It's a different setup, but that was just such a real rich memory for me. I have to figure out a way to to bring that back and put it there. Yeah, I was about to say you can definitely have some creative ideas about how to integrate that in with definitely your history knowledge. So I look forward to seeing what you're gonna do with that. Well, thank you. I've been going through old family photos lately. And when I say old, I'm old and you can see the garden evolving over time and you can see jugs out there and pots and pans in the swept yard. And so I'm really starting to keep a collection of those pictures to try to, as you say, germinate and plant those seeds of ideas so I can figure out what it's going to look like in the future. Yeah. So can you talk to us about your college experience and starting to get a career in horticulture? 
college experience, I graduated from Auburn University. So shout out to the Auburn Tigers. We are struggling this year in the SEC football standings, <laughs> but that is okay. We're eagle till I die. And um, I went to Auburn, honestly, out of convenience, meaning a few things. It was the next step for me. I understand college is a privilege. It's not a right. And my parents were, we just grew up middle class black kids, my brother, sister, and I, and they were college graduates themselves and had multiple degrees and advanced degrees. And the next step expected of us was college. But me being the baby of the bunch, the third child, my my dream originally was to go to UCLA. And my dad was like, well, you're only going to come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving. And then at the end of the year, and that shot that dream down because I was, I'm such a needy person, Jared. I wanted to be right up under my mom and daddy. So <laughs> Auburn was an hour and 20 minutes away. A lot of people don't even realize how close Auburn is that Alabama state line is to Atlanta. So I chose Auburn. I went down there, viewed the campus with my dad one day, loved it. I was like, this looks like college. It feels like it. So went there, kept changing my major, did not know what I wanted to do with my life. And I've told this story before, but it's a true story. I was on the Tiger Transit, which was the campus bus one day, beautiful fall day. And some students were under a what I now know is a sugar maple tree, bright yellow leaves. And they were laid out with clipboards. This is how old I am. And uh, they were taking notes. And I was like, what kind of class is this? And I was used to these classes with 300 people in an auditorium, no windows, just massive. You're just a number. Literally, you're just a number in those classes. Mm -hmm. And they just looked like they were just chilling, darn near having a picnic on a perfect 70 degree fall day. And I found out that those were the horticulture students. And I said, well, that's what I'm going to do because their class looked fun to me. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into the world of horticulture officially as a student as an, in a career. Isn't that fascinating that you just saw a group of people out looking at plants and you decided to do horticulture? Yeah, it's either fascinating or I'm just an unfocused person. <laughs> and I just, shoot, let me just try that. And that's really, it was honestly, that is, plain Jane as that sounds, that's really what it was. But it was, maybe it was serendipitous and maybe my, my, my inner spirit was pulling me towards the outdoors. So with that Aubrey experience, I will say this and I've um, shared this before. I was not a good student. I struggled there. I struggled to fit in the College of Agriculture for many reasons. It wasn't anyone was cruel to me. It was more so just the depression of being a college student and going through a range of emotions. And I shared this because I think sometimes we think we have to be perfect to achieve these things in horticulture, but I failed out of Auburn and returned and finished my degree there in horticulture. And I was on academic suspension. So I wasn't dumb or anything. I just wasn't, I wasn't engaged. So I just shared that because I didn't have some perfect academic story and I've gone on to do some things we'll discuss, but you're going to have failures. I think what's, I'm sharing that particularly because I failed so early, Jared, that it took away my fear of failure. You see what mm, I mean? And I was yeah. just like, I could try anything now because once you come back yeah. from that level of a low and you come back and you finish. And I remember my parents, I thought that they were going to just really be ashamed of me. They took it so well. And first they wanted to know that I want to transfer back home. But more importantly, they gave me the best advice of my life. And I'm over here worried about, they said, Abra, just pass when you go back. And I felt like a weight had been lifted off of me. And of course, A's are wonderful, but some of us, if you just pass, it's okay. And by me passing, I actually ended up getting A's and all these wonderful grades in the end, but it just took this burden off of me that I didn't have to be this 
perfect horticulture student that spelled every Latin word right. And that's not to dumb it down or discredit. It was just sometimes you just got to pass. So I passed and I have had a extraordinary career because of it, just for giving myself a second chance at a young age. And thankfully, my parents being supportive. That is a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that because I see this a lot with students that they feel they're not doing good enough and then it just adds more stress and weight. And then there's test anxiety. Like I really think that some of the things that people go through are systemic problems with the educational system that just like you said, there's depression and it's a hard time and you're going through challenges and some people are isolated and lonely. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that what you shared was really rich for students to hear. Well, thank you. And you're right. I'm glad you brought up the word test because looking back, I was never a good test. If you tell me to memorize something, forget it, even to this day. But if you give me, I don't know, an apple, a drum, two pots in a pan and a I don't know, piece of paper, say, make something. I'm like, I got you. <laughs> so <laughs> I am totally that random yeah. person that can make magic out of nothing. But if you say A, B, C, D, fill in the blank, memorize, regurgitate, I cannot do it. Just we're just it's different, different ways for different people. So so looking back on your college career with all of your horticulture experience, are there things you would have changed about your horticulture program? Like what, what would you have changed? What would you have done to try to make it more engaging or better or more focused on trying to improve student learning? Got any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I will say this. I didn't know how to communicate back then what I wanted or what interests me. I certainly didn't know how to communicate. Hey, I'm not a great memorizer, but you have to memorize it. It's an art and science to horticulture. I think also me not knowing Auburn back then, and I can't speak to Auburn today, certainly evolved, was very much a good old boys club of the South. And I'm not saying it as a critique. I'm saying it as a fact. And you're coming out of there prepared to either run a successful nursery or a successful greenhouse or be a successful commercial landscaper, which all of those things will pay you how they'll help you build a life and take care of family. And those things weren't my interest. I was deeply interested in history. My mom was an educator. She was a historian growing up. She taught high school. I was deeply educated in community. I was deeply educated in the art of horticulture, the beauty of it. I wasn't, they're teaching you the business aspect of horticulture. I mean, they teach you the plants, but there was a lot of, um, the words are escaping me, but those sheets where you're doing takeoffs of pricing and quoting. And I remember thinking, what happened to the sugar maple tree we were sitting up under with the blanket and clipboard? <laughs> so I, I didn't know how to express that to my professors. And I got to tell you, I didn't care about reading the PSI of an irrigation system, but that's what a horticulture degree is. Right. And if I had been able to express, I don't have to know these things, doctor such and such. And what really interests me is X, Y, Z. I think they could have taken me and shown me ultimate paths or other alternative paths is the word I'm looking for. And maybe they couldn't have, but they couldn't read my mind either. So I just think that having the courage, even at a young age, or even if you're shifting careers to be like, I know why you're teaching me this. I appreciate it. And my jam is really this thing over here. And how do we make these two work together? It Mm would have been a way to help Auburn help me back then. Okay, good. Thanks for sharing that. You, I know that once you graduated, you then went and worked at the Atlanta airport and then the Houston airport as well, correct? Yeah, yep, yeah. yep. 
So can you share about some of those experiences and maybe things that you learned in those workplaces? Yes. Working at the Atlanta airport. So I was landscape manager of Atlanta's airport, which I still believe is, and at the time was the world's busiest airport. And one of the things I learned there ultimately was dealing with imposter syndrome, which got me on my path to Black garden history. And I was young. I was in my mid to late 20s when I got this job and complete leadership position. You're running a staff of people. And I struggled with being taken seriously in meetings, honestly, not because I was Black or because I was a woman. The politics of the airport, it was a Black-led airport. It was my age. I was young. And nobody who's an executive of an airline and you're sitting in a meeting with them and all these engineers who are old enough to, in some cases, be your grandparents. Nobody really cares about your plant thoughts when you're young enough to be their grandchild. So I struggled with that. And at the airport, my mom, I was sharing that with my mom and Ryan Ganey, who was the incredible Southern horticulturist, the late, great Ryan Ganey at his home one day. And he told me that I needed to know my history. And my mama was there. And I was like, what do you mean my garden history? And she said, no, you need to know your history. And so that led me down a road of knowing black Southern garden history in this deep way. And that helped me come at that job and and just be confident. So that's what I learned there. And also what I learned, Jared, is that the way that we're taught horticulture in school isn't necessarily the most effective way to teach it in real life. So Mm -hmm. what I mean by that, my staff was overwhelmingly black women, young black women. And they come in and have, so your audience can't see me, but I have cornrows today and I've got (laughs) nice highlights in them and it's different hair than Jared saw me with the last time. And (laughs) they would come in and their hair would change, their nails would change, their car candy paint might change. And I was trying to teach them horticulture, starting with soil science. Then let's have a class on Latin names and botany. They did not care. It was so boring to them. It was, but it was me regurgitating the playbook I learned from Auburn. Mm. But when I said, Hey, look, all right, I see y'all are fly. You get fashion. I know you understand colors and textures because I see your style. Let's talk about this and apply it to flowers and perennial beds and Mm. textures. They were with it and they were able to do amazing things design wise and just visual and creative, creatively. Speaking to the art of horticulture because they already had this natural swag to them, just this natural fashion and presence to them. So the airport really taught me to meet people where they are is what I'm getting at, right? You don't have to start where you started. You can find common ground with what may interest them. And in that case, it was the visuals, the artistic part. And that was their entry to horticulture. And then we went backwards into soil science and Latin names and all that. So that was a really incredible lesson for me in Atlanta. We went from, there was no horticultural program to award winning and I was there for five years. So that was certainly my first big break. And then I was asked by who the gentleman who became the CEO of Bush Airport in Houston, Texas. There are three airports there, Bush and Hobby being the two for just regular, regular people. And then there's a third one that's a military airport. He asked me to come down there to be landscape manager. And I was fine in Atlanta, Jared, but I had never really left Atlanta besides Auburn. And I thought, well, why not? Why don't I try Texas and this big new world out there? And so I took the job and it was just more so out of me getting outside of my comfort zone. The hardest thing there, and this is truth, and you can speak to that. You're in Texas. I'm not a Texan. 
that you will never be one like ever. Either you're born there or you're not. Yeah, so, yeah, I've learned that too. <laughs> oh yeah, oh I'm, yeah. And I'm happy. So I'm more than happy to keep my Tennessee roots. So yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> but it was. It's a real thing. It is a real thing. And I remember thinking, how am I ever going to connect to these folks? And what I did, Jared, is that I just ended up spending my lunch breaks in the lunchroom with my team and not just my team, just the regular people who are just doing the everyday work out there in field and by field, I mean airfield. And that is what earned me respect with them. It wasn't me sitting in the office as a boss. It was more so I don't have any friends because I'm not a Texan. So I'm going to have to who's going to sit with me at lunch. <laughs> and that is how I was able to form relationships. And I mentioned my staff in Atlanta being overwhelmingly Black women, which was a, a wonderful, it was wonderful. And to give your audience context who may be listening from other places, Atlanta is still a majority Black city, about like 52%. So if I was in Denver, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. But that's why I had such a Black heavy staff. But in Houston, people would think I had this maybe huge American or Latino staff. It was Cambodian. A lot of my staff were from Cambodia or were Cambodian American. So that was something I didn't expect. And I remember calling my mama one day and said, oh, my mom, I said, said mama, uh, so many of my team members are Cambodian. She said, well, who do you think does the landscape in Cambodia, Abra? I was like, well, that's a good point. So <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things where it brought me back down to earth. And I was like, of course, they're doing horticulture in Cambodia. What was I thinking? So that was the big surprise of Houston and I bring that up because you were asking about what was a big revelation there. Houston is such an international city, Jared. It really is. I mean, I had friends from Greece, from Spain, from Denmark, Norway, you name it, Saudi Arabia. And so that is what I think I was expecting. Big Texas and J.R. Ewan and Dallas and Bobby and all that. And it was complete international global situation where I worked there. So it was. Yeah. Well, I really applaud you first for turning the Atlanta landscape into award-winning. I mean, that's amazing to do that. But second, just how brilliant of you to connect the content you're trying to teach your staff in Atlanta to design fashion things already aware of. And also kudos to you. People will probably pick this up from our talking, but you know, you're very personable. And so your ability to go sit at lunch and to, they always say like breaking bread together and sharing food together really helps to build connections. So that's brilliant. Well, thank you. And I was just trying to make it day by day. So yeah. I appreciate that. And uh, Atlanta's airport has changed a lot. So please don't judge me about what you see today. But I have <laughs> pictures to show for it. We even built a floral clock. Your audience wow. should know that. That's amazing. That's yeah. great. Cool. Yep. And so from there, you then went to the Longwood Fellows Program, correct? I left Houston, came back to Atlanta and worked for the University of Georgia Extension oh, Service okay. for two years. Okay. Yeah. And from there, I went to Longwood. And okay. even while so I moved back to Atlanta, just because my parents were starting to get a little bit older and I wanted to move. And I'm glad I did because my dad ended up passing away a, a few years after that. So it was wonderful. I had those years together, but I remember working at Extension and in the University of Georgia and thinking, I still, there's something else I could be doing. And I remember being on Twitter and not one night laying in the bed, scrolling through Twitter. And there was an announcement that Longwood was taking applications for their fellows program. And I said, I'm going to apply for this thing. The rest, as they say, is history. So that's amazing that you got in. Could you talk to us some more about that experience? Yes. So the Longwood 
fellows program has been going on for decades and decades. It used to be a graduate program. Now it's more of a professional fellowship, so no degree attached. And what it is, the leadership and public horticulture fellowship. So it brings you into the global world of public horticulture. So the great gardens of the world, the cultural institutions, the botanical gardens, the pleasure gardens. And it was, it certainly changed my life. I, so I told those stories about Atlanta airport and being around these women that were so fresh and being around the team Cambodia, my lunch buddies, and they had the best lunches. And one thing when people say, be yourself, be authentic, tell your story. These were some of the most incredible people in the world I interviewed with. And they did fly people in from all over the world for these interviews. And I remember thinking, all I can do is tell my story. And the things that I shared with Longwood were the things I shared with you. And that's what people mean. You don't have to make up something to sound cool or like you're supposed to fit in when you're in a place with money and access and resources. Just tell your story. And the story I was telling was the story of a little black girl from the South that had, had these experience in public horticulture, but in a different way through airports, through the parks. I didn't mention I was an arborist for the city of Atlanta Department of Parks for a few years through extension. And me sharing that is what really got me into the program because I was just sharing it from a different angle. And it was very freeing because especially if someone hasn't been to Longwood, it is such a well-oiled machine. It's so beautiful. It's everything is perfect. It is horticulture perfection. And I remember thinking, I don't know if this is going to fly. <laughs> that's what they wanted. They want people to be honest. They want, that's why they're Longwood because they embrace new ways, new ideas, new thought patterns. So that is what I would share about that experience. If you're going to go for it, and I, these were things I put in my application. And I remember thinking, this is all I got, which is the truth. And if you share that, you just never know what can happen. Yeah. If you were going to teach a class to college students about some of the things you learned in the Longwood Fellows Program, what are two or three highlights that you would share with them? If I were going to teach a class to students, I would share with them, it's not as much, we use the word networking a lot, and it really is relationship. The people that you meet, you don't know when you're going to meet them or why you're going to meet them. Keep those relationships warm because you will need them again one day. And that would be something that I would really want them to understand. People work with people that they like. A lot of people can do the job I'm doing. They can do your job. And that's not shade to you, Jared. It's just a fact. But no, no I agree. Yeah. Yeah. People got to spend the money somewhere. They have to do it. And they're like, you know what? You can do the job and I like you. So let me allow you this opportunity. And it really is as simple as that. And that is deeply through warm relationships. It is not just network. Here's my business card. It's these subtle check-ins here and there, which I even need to get better at. So that is real. That is very real. A lot of things are just a phone call, a, oh, I found this article in the newspaper and it made me think of you. Oh, I went back down home to Georgia and here's a little jar of pecans. I mean, it is that simple, like really. <laughs> and then the other thing is the truth to students, meaning Longwood is a place where it is, it's old money, it's old Pennsylvania money and access to resources and money does matter. It is all this shoestring budget stuff, I know I've lived it. And I lived it more so, I'll be honest, I lived it more so as a college student, even in the parks department, the shoestring. You get to airports, they got money. But the way that Longwood is able to invest in their team, invest in your dreams, 
it blows my mind. And I think we try to be dismissive of, oh, well, you can just, I think we always think we got to come out of the mud. And it's so much easier when you don't have to. And when you are blessed with those opportunities, it's on you. It's on me to help other people now and share those resources that Longwood brought to me. So make sure you keep warm relationships with people and never underestimate the power of resources, financial resources to change your life and the trajectory of your career. They do matter. That's great. Thank you for sharing some of those thoughts. On another podcast, you made a comment about how when you were at the Longwood program, that Longwood was 80% thinking and 20% execution. I was curious if you could get into the weeds some more on that and maybe how we could apply that to the world of horticulture. Wow. And I did say that. I forgot I said that. And I just, I love, I love that you did all this homework. That is so amazing. And <laughs> Longwood, yes. I think, so we live in a world where speed, get her done, and a very Southern saying, right? And yes, yes. Yeah. First and fastest, biggest, largest, newest. Longwood is very, that's a good idea. Think about that. How can we take this idea and make it better? Let's do research. Let's, if we're going to build this thing, who are the best artisans in the world that build that? Let's study what they do. Can we meet them? Let's send them an email or a phone call. Let's drive out there. Let's fly out there. And again, that, that has to do with resources, but they are very thoughtful about what they do. So the end product, by the time they execute it, they have thought it out. They have planned it. They have met with the best people in the world, which doesn't mean you're always taking a plane to Japan. It may be someone in your own community that's a subject matter expert or be related to someone that knows somebody that the end result is always beyond whatever you imagined it could be in the best way. And I am, I'm an American. We're used to quick, fast, now, boom, make it. And I never, I don't think I had ever operated like that in my life. Even in airports, it's a very fast lifestyle. Even in horticulture in airports, it's right. what's the next thing? Replace the plant tomorrow. Somebody ran it over with their luggage. It's very quick. <laughs> <laughs> in Longwood, and it, it was out of my comfort zone to slow down a lot. And teaching me that has made me better now as a professional because people say, oh, Avery, you're so quiet in the meeting. And I'm like, oh, I'm just thinking, I'm processing, I'm listening. So that is what they do well. And to me, and maybe I, people say, oh, you're giving away the secret. That is the secret. They're thoughtful. They think it out 80% of the time and then execute it the 20 and you can't go wrong. Honestly, you've done your homework. Yeah. I thought that was a beautiful saying. And I mean, even in my career, I've been encouraged to do things the quick and fast without thinking at all. And every time almost looking back, it would have, it, it's always been, well, that would have actually worked out terribly. So I'm glad I paused and thought about it. And I think that's such rich advice for horticulturists who sometimes are impulsive doing things like, oh, I'm going to buy this plant, stick it in the ground without any thought on what we're going to do. Yeah. And even when there's failure at Longwood, if something doesn't work, it's not popular, it does, there's still thought put into it afterwards in the meetings, behind the meetings. Why didn't this work? It's not just like, oh, we failed and let's try the next thing. It's understanding how to turn that failure into a success. So mm -hmm. that is something that I certainly wish I had learned early on. And I'm not saying my parents didn't teach me that, but you're just, you're trying to perform and show this resume of what all you've done. And if you think about it and get it done right, you, I mean, you're going to always win. <laughs> you really will. 
So thank you for talking to us about how your interest in horticulture germinated and in ways you've been blossoming. I'm curious if you could talk to us more today. What are some projects that you're working on and really bringing into the world? Wow, some projects I'm working on. So most recently, I'm going to start with a very fun project I worked on recently. I co-produced an event called Music and Flowers with a business partner named Talia Boone. Her company is Postal Petals. And there, if you think of direct ship farming fresh food to your home, she ships direct cut flowers to your home so you can do your own beautiful arrangements. And we co-produced an event called Music and Flowers for South Coast Botanic Garden in Los Angeles in this past September, about a month and a half ago. And what we did was bring in floral artists from Los Angeles, seven women, seven Black women. And the theme was celebrating the floral community there and also Los Angeles music scene. And so the theme was very much 80s, 90s, LA hip hop. So there were seven women that did the work. And one of the artists, uh, the, the one of the most popular pieces there, a woman took a, what they call an old school, you and I would probably call it a lowrider, Jared, and they flower bombed it. And it was just such a beautiful highlight of the day. And there was floral fashion where people took kind of like what the women wear when they're skateboarding on the boardwalk. We don't have that in Atlanta and use that and create that out of flowers and floriculture. And then you're listening to Snoop and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Dr. Dre. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. so good. It was so much fun and posters of these iconic album covers. So it was really about bringing community in and music and flowers being music and flowers are certainly a way that share similar communication People communicate their feelings through music. They certainly communicate their feelings through plants. So that was really cool. And I got to tell you, it was on one of those days in LA where it actually ended up raining Hmm. and people stuck around. It was multi-generational. It was multicultural. It was a vibe of all vibes. And I remember telling Talia, who lives in LA and is from LA, I said, I feel like I'm in a LA, like one of y'all's epic neighborhood parties I hear about in in South Los Angeles. And she was like, yeah, this is exactly what it feels like. So there was a sound bath. There was gentle yoga. It was very LA in that sense, but it was so much fun. And it was educational for people because people sometimes forget about the art of floriculture and that there's no limit to what can be done with plants. So that was really fun. Another project that I worked on recently, it was, it's over now. But this past summer, the Around the Table exhibition at the New York Botanic Garden, I worked on that. So speaking of 80% planning, 20% execution. So I was on a team. I was hired as a consultant through a horticultural consultant through a company called Lord Cultural Resources. And we worked on that project for the New York Botanic Garden, planned it all last year. And it was one of those things where the Botanic Garden there really wanted to embrace the Bronx community, their neighbors, they're located in the Bronx versus bringing in the big name of the summer. And they wanted to celebrate the food culture, the people, the community in the Bronx. And so that was a really fun project to work on. And going back to Longwood, I thought I would come out of there and be a director of horticulture or a job like that. I never thought that I would go into the exhibition programming art world, art and hmm. culture world. Yet here I am. So it was a real cool pivot. And another thing I want to share is in January of this year through May of this year, I was honored to teach a course in Black Garden History at my alma mater, Auburn University, to the landscape architecture graduate students. Mm -hmm. And so speaking of that failure, I 
actually spent a summer. I thought I wanted to be a landscape architect. I found out about it through the horticulture program at Auburn, took the summer studio. And at that time, it was a smaller program. So they only took 10 people. And I was one of the people that got cut. And so that's why I ended up being full-on horticulturist, not a landscape architect. Fast forward almost 20 years, and who does Auburn call? Averly, <laughs> your girl. And say, Can you teach the landscape architecture uh, students? I said, yes, look at this full circle moment. Yeah, so, that's great. So cool. So the same building where I had literally been rejected from this program is the same building I walked into and I was like, Hello, everyone. My name is April Lee, and we are going to learn Black Garden history. So it was a very, very cool moment. And I bring that up because Professor David Hill, the associate professor there, was the one that brought me on. He just reached out to me and said, hey, I know what you do. I would love for you to teach my students. He's a brilliant landscape architect. And what we did with that course was we learned about Black Garden history in the U.S. And so we were also invited by the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society to be a part of the 2022 flower show. And so the students thing was in full bloom Mm -hmm. and the students did their design based off one of the people that we learned about a black woman named Effie Lee Newsom, who was an eco poet, a Harlem Renaissance children's writer. And she wrote about nature and her most famous work was a book called Gladiola garden, all these beautiful nature poems. Long story short, Effie Lee Newsom was born in Philadelphia. When she got married, she spent time living in Alabama, in Montgomery, in Birmingham. Her mom was from Mobile. Her father was from Philadelphia. Well, her father lived in Philadelphia, her and her mom and dad. And we chose her body of work because of that Pennsylvania-Alabama connection, right? Sure, yeah. We were invited to be one of the, I forget the word, Jared, but basically it's there's about 12 designers that they invite, I think, to be part of the main display. And these college students who have not graduated yet, at least they've not graduated from grad school yet, did their design, executed it. 250,000 people a year come to this show and they ended up winning five awards, including a gold medal for their Gladiola Garden interpretation. And I am still not over it. So Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it was a big deal. I told them they're starting their career as five-time award winners. <laughs> yeah. And again, okay, so back to Pennsylvania money resources. When they're announcing winners, it's a tent. Yeah. There's hors d'oeuvres and people walking around and champagne. And I was like, remember this feeling, kiddos? So, yeah. <laughs> it's like, welcome to the top. That's, That's how great. I told them. So That's great. Yeah. That was. And then finally, I will say finally, I, my long-awaited manuscript Lord Jesus, I'm still scribbling, as Effie Lee Newsom would say. She said, still scribbling, <laughs> but we are almost to the finish line. I know I'm wearing Timber Press, my publisher's nerves out. They have been beyond gracious. I'm wearing my own nerves out, and I do think it'll be worth the wait. So yeah. that is what I'm spending my winter doing, finishing up that book. I know people say, she's been saying that for years. I have, and I really mean oh, it this time. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I thought you were going to jump on first, but uh, let's go ahead and delve in there. So let's talk more about your book. I can't wait to hear more about it. Okay, well, I was at the, what was then called the Olds Garden Communicators, formerly Garden Writers Conference back in September of 2019, I think. And one of the parts of the conference was that you could present to a publisher, pitch your book idea. And so I had this idea to write a book on Black garden history, almost like if you compare it to the Hidden Figures movie where the they were talking about the NASA, the Black women, the science, yeah, sure. Catherine Johnson, those scientists. And I 
the book was rejected twice by, by two publishers. But the third time I met with Tom from Timber Press and I pitched this to him and he said, Abra, I love it. Let's talk about this further. And that's how I ended up getting signed to do this book. And the story that I told that got me signed was a story about a gentleman named William Costello, Charles William Costello. He went by Charles Costello, who was a Black entomological artist at Ohio State University in the 1940s. And for your amazing audience that's listening, an entomological artist is an insect artist. So he drew out the sketches of the insects that the zoology and entomology students study at Ohio State during that time. So it's just a really incredible story. He always was an artist. He drawing and watching the people paint the windows in department stores. And he said that he was at a picnic one day and saw an insect fall into a drink at the picnic. And he was just amazed with the colors and the shapes of the insect. And he didn't pursue that career, but he was still an artist. And he ended up having a whole magic show, meaning caravans of people that worked under him and he had a traveling magic show and one day the caravan caught fire and tragically burned to the ground and so he got back into his art and was displaying some of his art at what was to compare it like a boys and girls club in columbus ohio one of the professors at ohio state saw his artwork and wanted him to come to ohio state and do the drawings there for the entomology classes that's how he got on there and i was fortunate through this research to be in contact with his niece. And yeah. yep, her name is Jackie. And she said, oh my gosh, you know, I, yes, like this is my uncle and some of his work still exists to this day. So that's how I got into the book writing business. And the book is called Conquer the Soil, the Untold Stories of Black America's Farmers, Gardeners, and Growers. So there are more stories like Effie Lee Newsome and Charles William Costello and all these other amazing people in not just Black America, but American garden history. And I want to say this too, Jared. I was talking to one of my editors of the book and they were reading some of the pieces. And you're talking about people that had 20, 30, 40 years invested into horticulture, whether they were artists, writers, landscape architects, growers. And she said to me, she said, Abra, this isn't a garden history book. These are love stories. And I said, yes, of course they're love stories. So I... Feel so excited that I'm writing a book of love stories because these people, we're not in it for the money, though we should certainly get paid more. And we do, <laughs> we have to collect a lot of jobs to, to pay our bills, but mm-hmm. we love what we do. And when she said it like that, it just shifted the narrative of my writing. It injected new energy. I was out here writing a bunch of book reports and I was thinking it's got to be more exciting than that. It really is a book of love stories, and I can't wait for people to read it. So I think they're going to be, I know they're going to be so inspired. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that one little teaser about the book. I cannot wait to read more of these stories. Can you talk about the title a little bit? Because it's such an action verb, conquer the soil. It is, and it has been a controversial thing because some people say, why would you say conquer the soil and we're in service to nature? And we are as a people. I 100% agree to that. and. Conquer the Soil came from the writing of W.E.B. Du Bois, the scholar, the one of the founders of the NAACP, the activist, the legend. And in his book, The Souls of Black Folk, in one of the chapters, he was speaking to the three gifts that the enslaved Africans brought to the Americas, which was 
the gift of story and song. When So when you think about Negro spirituals, passing out oral histories, the gift of spirit. So just that deep religious belief that the connection to your ancestors, your connection to the universe. And then third, he mentioned the gift of strength and brawn, which he described as the ability to conquer the soil and work the land and build up this great nation we call the United States of America. So when I read those words, conquer the soil, they just lifted off the pages to me. And I said, oh, this is it. When I have a company, I'm naming it Conquer the Soil. And honestly, that night I decided my company will be called Conquer the Soil. So that's where it comes from. And it comes from, so if you don't like it, take it up with WB Du Bois, but I doubt that (laughs) because he was a great debater too. So it just, it's a real meaning to it. And it's not just a cool title. And I'm just so excited that even that is not just rooted in, in, in Black American history and American history, it's rooted back to even horticulture, those words. So yeah. thank you for asking about that. I love sharing that story. Yes. No, it's a great story. And I love the inspiration, how it really jumped out to you from the page. So it's always yeah. great when words do that. They're so touching. Yes. And then with your business is also called Conquer the Soil. So what are some other things that you do through your business? As a business, Conquer the Soil, I work with cultural institutions, meaning museums, public gardens, arboretums, universities, to explore the history, folklore, and art of horticulture. So as I mentioned, the program I worked on with the New York Botanic Garden, sometimes it's speaking engagement. Sometimes it is me going through an exhibition profile that a museum or cultural institution may have. And as it relates to garden history, reading through it and making changes and or asking questions. So it is a job that it's not something that I even ever knew existed. It was something that is a direct effect of Longwood and them saying, you know what, Abra, you you tell really great stories. And there's a whole world out there where you can tell stories through the garden world. And, and we have programs around that. And there's outdoor living exhibitions. And I said, I okay, yeah, that sounds like what I want to do. So that's how I got into that. And when I left Longwood, it was right when the pandemic started and we were all on lockdown and a lot of places were closed. A lot of gardens weren't hiring, but gardens started reaching out to me because they were having more online programming, right? Their exhibitions had gone virtual and their talks had gone virtual. And they said, Hey, can you help us? And by the end of that summer, the summer 2020, I was like, I guess I work for myself. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's incredible. And I think sometimes people think you have to have like a nine to five job, but you're a great example of how that's not always the case. Yes. Yes. And I mean, and I will say, look, ain't nothing wrong with that nine to five. I have never worked so much in my life. You are every day. You can't even, (laughs) you go to sleep and thoughts are in your brain. (laughs) The non-glamorous side is that, yes, I tell these cool stories, but yes, I got to keep up with my receipts and profit and loss statements and look at scale and business, all that unglamorous stuff. And you have to realize oh, I can't be an employee of the Conqueror of the, or of Conquer the Soil anymore. I got to run this company, which it isn't the fun, creative part. It is all spreadsheets. So yeah. it's, look, there's nothing wrong with doing it either way. Trust me. Yeah. And the other thing too, is you were talking about back at Auburn, like you really struggle with some of that. Now you're doing it because again, you've got that passion and focus and drive. So kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, you just... And I think to speak to that as well, you're right. I, where I struggled with that in Auburn, in real life, there's a lot of things you can just teach yourself in real time, right? So 
don't ever think you can't figure it out. If I figured it out, anybody can figure it out. That's a, yes. that's the truth. Yeah. And something else I meant to mention earlier, you were rejected twice for your book. And I think sometimes people do something, they see rejection and that immediately shuts them down, but you pressed on and that was probably came in from some of that failure you experienced back in college as well too. And realizing that it's not that big of a deal. So, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's true. It was rejected twice. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'll just try the next time. I mean, you just, don't even and I have a mentee now I've had this is my third year with the Auburn University College of Agriculture Mentor Program oh that's cool yeah it is I'm look I'm just giving back to Auburn look at me (laughs) okay now I've got to ask more about this as a professor so I'm all ears yeah so and it's I've never talked about this to anyone so I am they have what they call ag mentors agriculture mentors through the College of Agriculture which I graduated from at Auburn And I say that I know people know I graduated from Auburn, but they may not understand that it's from the College of Agriculture where horticulture is located. And this is my third year being a mentor. And so they assigned you there. It's a real program. You go down there and meet in real life. You meet up monthly. You have a whole plan together. And so my first mentee was a young man named Jonathan Hampton, star student, straight A student. He's in the pre-landscape architecture program now. Phenomenal young man. And he's straight A student. I mean, just always having me, he's working on these wonderful scholarship applications. Then my next mentee was a young lady named Lakira, who was actually in pre-vet. And again, this A student, star student. And so my new mentee, and I don't want to say their name because I don't want to. Oh yeah, that's still, yeah. I don't want to think (laughs) negative, but they, I said, well, what's going on? You kind of sound down when I'm talking to you. They said, oh, well, I'm struggling with school and this accounting class I'm taking. And I said, well, are you on scholarship? Is your scholarship dependent on this? They said, oh, no, I got loans, which I understand because I had to take out student loans. I said, look, don't tell your mom and daddy I told you this, but just pass. All you got to do is pass accounting. You don't have to get an A, <laughs> just get a C. And it was so funny because and by the end of the conversation, my mentee was so lifted because they were like, I never thought about that. All I have to do is pass. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you just got to pass accounting. No one said you had to get an A. But they were stressing over getting an A in the class and they were already not at a C. And I said, look, all you got to do is get to a C. I know you can pull it up to that. And so that goes back to being a mentor. Sometimes you got to keep it real with your mentees. It wasn't something on the line in the sense of that. I said, look, pass this class. You got it. And we will see each other next week. So I'll get to hear about how they're thriving down there and all those good things. But I enjoy it because it is so fun to be around young people. It's a different experience that they're having versus what I had in college, meaning social media wasn't a thing back then. I was just doing wild and crazy things. There was no one could Google me. They can be Googled now. People can see what they're doing. And I'm like, man, I didn't have this kind of pressure. So it is a joy to, to be a part of that program and to see my mentees thrive and all of us still stay in touch. So I love it. I love it. Well, that's great. Yeah. yeah, I've never heard of that. So yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So on the podcast, I also like to ask about how people are cultivating themselves, keeping their skills rich, uh, keeping their creativity going. And I was just curious, do you have daily practices that you do to keep yourself centered and to keep yourself growing as a horticulturist? To keep myself centered, I don't do it daily, but I do it if I need it. If I am tired, I am not scared to take a nap. And I don't, people say, oh, nap for 20 minutes and get up. If I have to sleep for two hours, I will get do that. 
and get back to what I need to do. So I'm not scared to rest my brain. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not scared to to not do anything. I don't, if there's something to think so much for my job and I have to connect a lot of dots and cre- make connections in, in terms of creativity and how this story ties to that story. And there are some days that I'm just thinking, I'm going to sit here and watch Disney, that the Disney app all day long and Cruella and whatever movie <laughs> and just sitting there and consciously not thinking mm-hmm. and just allowing my brain to just be free. And then the next day I can get right to it, Jared. So I am very okay with breaks, taking breaks where before I would just grind and push through. And when I did that, it got to a point where I was so overwhelmed. I had fear of checking my inbox. I was missing deadlines and things from people. And I remember thinking, this isn't sustainable. I'm going to have to start taking time. I can't take on everything. So I certainly do that. And I think another thing I do that I enjoy is I enjoy reading. That's why I was so excited to talk to you. I love smart people in my life and you are a smart person in my life. So I just (laughs) love good conversation and book. The books don't have to be about horticulture. They can be about anything. And I just love even just witty banter and words. I think that is my real love language there. And so I try to just always, I I mean, I almost read anything in front of me and try to learn from it and just be like, ooh, the way they said that or how can I change these words around? So those are the ways that I guess I self-care for myself, horticulture. Yeah. What are some books that you really return to often for inspiration, whether it be horticulture or other facets of life? Some books I return to. So there is a book called Wrapped in Rainbows, which is the biography of Zora Neale Hurston by Valerie Boyd, a woman who passed away, I believe last year. She passed away young. And that book is about Zora Neale Hurston, the great Harlem Renaissance writer, and who What you realize in the book, she really was famous for her writing after the Harlem Renaissance. She was more of a personality of the Harlem Renaissance. But remember I mentioned earlier how I was just out here writing book reports and profiles. Reading that book showed me how you write a love story about a person who loved their career and just lived in a world. And she lived during the Jim Crow era, but the focus is so much, or it's not even a but, it's an and. And the focus just shows you how she was able to work and create and thrive and live a rich life in spite of the circumstances and not reduce a person's legacy into the time that they lived in. So I returned to that book. I remember finishing that book and hugging it at the end because I said, this Mm. is incredible. I will never be able to write like Valerie Boyd, but at least I, if you aspire to that, you're going to continue to push yourself. So it was just so thoughtfully written. And I remember reading, I think she researched it for 10 years. And I said, well, shoot, I'm a few years behind my deadline. So it gave me, (laughs) it made me feel good about it. Right. So that is a book I returned to. And honestly, I got to tell you, as simple as it is, when I say simple, because it's a a children's book, I do return to Effie Lee Newsom's Gladiola Garden and read the stories there. And I returned to it because this was maybe the winter of 2020. I saw an original copy online and I couldn't believe it because it's never an original copy of this book online by Effie Lee Newsom, the woman who my students at Auburn did the garden about. Yeah. So the book is released in 1941 or 44, I think. I said, oh, it's an original copy and I got to buy it. So I bought it and it has the cover on it and it was the most expensive purchase I've ever made. And it, it was one of those things how people say, oh, I bought my first Birkin bag. I bought 
and Effie Lee Newsom, Gladiola Garden. <laughs> and years later, I ended up meeting her niece that remembered her and her aunt visit during the summers. And the words in that book are so playful. They're so fresh. You can see that this woman is a naturalist and a birder and a plantswoman and a floriculturalist. And it just makes you, because it's written for children, it just makes you not scared to create. Mm-hmm. You don't feel like you have to be perfect, right? You just, yeah, you can just be fun, venom. And so I return to that book a lot. And I love it because it's an old book and it's, the pictures are so beautiful. The illustrator of the book was a Black woman, a famous artist named Lois Maylou Jones, who went on to lead the art department at Howard University the famous historically black college university in DC. So those are my two books that if I'm down and out, I just grab them and go. Sounds very rich. Thank you for sharing those titles. As a professor, we're Mm -hmm. always trying to figure out ways to increase diversity in Mm -hmm. horticulture. And I was wondering, do you have some thoughts on that? Because sometimes when you go to garden shows or garden talks, you see limited diversity there. Mm-hmm. And what is one small thing that each of us can do to try to help to bridge the connections between cultures and really help horticulture grow and blossom and flourish? Wow. One thing each of us can do to bridge the cultures and connect. So I am part of a Black, Indigenous, People of Color horticulture group. And it's not even for us to sound politically correct. We call it the bipart work group. And I was sharing with you before we we got on, we were doing the pre-talk together. We've even had dialogue within the group. Is that the right term to use? Lumping people of color together when there's Black Southerners, there's Haitian Americans, there's people that are loyal to the West Coast is the best coast. I mean, it is so broad for such a rich group of people. So we're even revisiting, is that the best term to use for our group? But in terms of, diversity and how to make it better. I think one of the things we have to do is, for me, it was returning to my roots, knowing my roots in the South, knowing Southern stories, knowing that's entry, like the entry point when you came in and you said, oh, I'm from Tennessee. I get it. And we were talking about Texas. Like that's a commonality. People from the South, we will die on our Southern Hill. Good, bad, ugly, complicated. I am riding for the South and I'm so proud of that. And I think that people forget about the commonalities we have. And in terms of exploring groups of people, I think that really what it is, Jared, is that people are just hidden in plain sight. So even the stories that I tell, I'm not the first person to tell these stories. Somebody recorded it before me decades and decades ago. Mm -hmm. And I think about Auburn, my alma mater, the PWI, the predominantly white institution right there in Auburn, Alabama. Auburn is on the same road, literally the same street as downtown Tuskegee. Tuskegee being made famous, not just by Booker T. Washington, the founder, but George Washington Carver, just the complete goat, greatest of all time of horticulture. Mm -hmm. And for Auburn and Tuskegee to be on the same street and not even have a very strong relationship, that's unfathomable. That's such a missed opportunity by my alma mater. It's This is Tuskegee. George Washington Carver is buried right there. You go right Mm -hmm. there. Literally, Jared, you turn into the campus, person greets you at the gate, and you just not even walk in a minute. And it's just like, bloop, he's right there. His headstone's right there. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think about how that's such a missed, missed opportunity. So 
I think it's just more so about being aware of your own community. That's what I'm getting at Auburn for this treasure to the world of horticulture to be right there and us to not, when I was in school, I'm speaking because I went through a whole college of agriculture five and a half year experience there. Remember I failed out y'all five and a half years. We didn't go down to Tuskegee. I went to Tuskegee because I'm black and the black students will party down there and it was a black town, right? But the horticulture program never mentioned any of this. They never said, let us just take you to the grave site. Let's take you to the archives down mm. there. Let's walk around the campus of the town. This is Tuskegee. So to me, it's the obvious things that we're not doing that, that are, and the thing about it, it's not that it would have been interesting because I was the black student and the only one at that time. It would have been interested to the whole class, Jared. I know it's interesting to you right now hearing mm-hmm. this. So we just, we have to be more, my friend Wamboy Ippolito would say we have to expand our options. Just look for what's obvious right there in our own community to, to I think, to bridge those gaps. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah, I talk about George Washington Carver in my intro lecture and intro hort, just basically saying like, been a lot of people who've thought about great ways of using plants. And that's the thing too, that I love about plants and horticulture. When I lived in Raleigh, just having plants outside, I made connections with people that I probably would have never talked to, but you know, you just start making these bridging these connections. Oh yeah. And then I have a fun Carver story to tell. Um, Oh yeah. I don't want to ask you too much about any of these stories because I don't want to give away everything in your book that's coming up. But yeah, if you've got a George Washington Carver story, I'd love to hear it. For you, because you said that you talk about them in class. So I'll go down to the Tuskegee archives from time to time. And just in the hallway, you're just knocking on Dana, who's the archivist, the head archivist there at his door. And there's a picture right outside his door, just outside of your office at your university. And it's a Christmas card that George Washington Carver drew. It's just sitting there. And then you might walk two steps and there's a Mm. desk and they'll say, oh, that was his desk. And I'm like, what? And it's just (laughs) sitting there in the hallway. So it's just, it is overwhelming to be staring at the man's desk, right? You're not supposed to touch it. And you're just looking at this Christmas card and it's right there. And I don't think sometimes we realize how accessible these things are. So you can't see those things and not be inspired. You can't believe that you're like, I can't believe I'm standing right here and I can lay flowers at your final resting place. So those, I know. Look, you come to Atlanta, I will put you in a car and we are going to hightail it (laughs) to Alabama and I'm going to show you all these things. So And they're free. You just say, hey, can I see this? And they're, they welcome you with open arms. Yeah. They're so proud of their school as they should be. And it's not just him. It's so many. He's the name. I don't. We don't have time to get into all the other names, but it's so many other extraordinary horticulturists and landscape architects. Edward Lyon Price that taught at Tuskegee. David Augustus Williston, the first black landscape architect. And just to put your finger over their signature on a document, it is life-changing. So... I, that's what I just wanted to share. I know that's kind of geeking out on archives, but it makes you believe it's possible. They're doing these correspondence. There was no Zoom. They couldn't record a podcast. They're writing letters. <laughs> and it makes you. It makes me right. say, Jared, when I get off of here, I need to write you a letter on Friday because <laughs> it's so beautiful how you see their life unfold, right? Sure. Yeah. And, and as a lover of words, I love that. Nobody's going to know my email password when I croak, right? So it's those type of things that that I really appreciate. So I know I went on a whole other rabbit hole about my Carver story, but I just wanted to share that. Oh, that's great. Thank you for making these stories more accessible to everyone. So as we wrap up here, I wanted to ask a few rapid fire questions. One is garden myths 
do you know of a garden myth that most people believe, but you found evidence or experience that shows it to be otherwise? Ooh, so horticulture is an art and a science and people on the science side are saying it's science. Things are the way they are. This is why it happens. I do believe that people have real spiritual connections to plants. I don't think that it's just, oh, I watered this plant and I did all the right things at the right time of year and fed it. I do believe you need to have a spiritual connection to nature to be the most successful. So where that would be argued as a myth by a person on the science end, understandably by me as a human and having that connection, that spiritual connection, that is completely a truth in my book. Okay. Thank you. Do you have any favorite plants that you've been engaging with lately? I've never asked somebody of their favorite plant outright. Yeah. Do you have a group of plants that you really found inspirational late? Yeah, I mean, I, because I'm into garden history, that is the mission of my company. Um, I like, I mean, I'm an heirloom type girl, right? I love mm. the old fashioned plants. I love, I was reading, and this has been years ago, but I came across an article by Billy Hunt, William Lanier Hunt, the great horticulturist out of North Carolina. And he talked about the enslaved Africans, the formerly enslaved Africans being the ones who went back to the big houses, the plantations after the Civil War, when the South was burned to the ground. And it was them that made all these cuttings of these heirloom plants. And they took it back to their cabins and homes and replanted them. And that's why we have all these European plants from the old country, from Spain and places like that. And I thought, that's so true. These folks couldn't go back. The Union soldiers had occupied their places. It was two things in that story. Number one, these Black people who had been enslaved still being the caregivers of these plants. And then back to those love stories, two things can be true. You can be in bondage and also have been the caregiver of a garden that you deeply love. That didn't, both can be true, right? You can be in bondage, as horrific as that is, and have this appreciation for this rose that you care for and raise. So I love the heirloom plants. I love, I mean, a simple person. I love the mighty magnolia and the cedar tree. Like I love the Southern plant palette. I yeah. really do. I love, I'll be in Jacksonville next week, next week. And I love how when you go down there, the people say, oh, it's invasive. The Spanish moss is hanging from the oak trees. It's It gives the Charleston and Savannah vibes without the, without the genteelness of those cities. <laughs> And I love it. And I just think, yeah. wow, yeah. this is what I come for. Or even when I'm in Mobile, Alabama, I think. So you asked me about a plant, the Southern plants. I'm, I told you I'm down on my Southern Hill. All of them. I want them all. I love them all. Cool. Great. What's one simple thing that gardeners can do to make their gardens better? People learn from the elders. They're going to have incredible success in their gardens. I talk about my Aunt Lois and that swept yard. And my mama has reminded me many a time, look, you earned your degree in horticulture and we you were from a place of privilege. We were able to help you with these loans and you will never out horticulture, out gardener, out agriculture. Your Aunt Lois or her father, who was my great grandfather, who couldn't read or write. She was like, please don't ever get it twisted. Like you're and this is not disrespect to academia degrees, but she's like, you'll never be the horticulturist they'll be. And it wasn't to insult me. It was to be honest with me. It's the truth. So listen to your elders that, that grew up on those farms, or even if they were in the city or the suburbs that have been planting for years and years, because they have the real knowledge. They're living it. They have lived it. And listen to your, yeah, listen to your elders. That's great. 
Second to last question I always ask on the Plantastic Podcast, propagating horticulture is just like we know how to make more plants. What are some cultural strategies that we can do to try to make more people who love plants out in the world? Cultural strategies to make more people who love plants out in the world. It can be more open with languages. And I don't mean, I'm not saying in terms of knowing multiple languages, which is phenomenal. I wish I could speak multiple languages. I'm saying things like, I will read garden writing. And people will say, oh, I came across a daffodil in the woods and it was charming. And they'll write it like that. And I'm thinking, I thought you were from Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) So write it or quaint all the and we know those terms mean jared right right. or whimsical and i'm like y'all just say you read british horticulture and you're repeating it in regards to (laughs) be yourself be out there and say get her done in the spring like you can say those things you can say i need you to grow sun if you're from new york right just Mm. that is what we can do think to make it more accessible to more people write in your native tongue whatever that is and if it is you're you speaking from slang in the hood or you're a preppy part like be yourself and don't just write this dialogue that you see other people write because they're doing it that would it is such i gotta tell you the point of this is that if you read food writing it is exciting it is a page turner it is a lot of garden writing including my old garden writing i'm like what was i writing why did i write like that <laughs> like i'm not penelope Hobhouse. so <laughs> stop with that just yeah yeah Talking your Tennessee tongue when you're yeah, doing it. No, I like that. Sometimes some of this writing, it's like eating the dessert. Excruciating. It's like <laughs> eating a dessert that's too sweet. Yes. Last question. Where can people learn more about you online and find you online? Ooh, okay. Well, you can find me online at conquerthesoil.com. C-O-N-Q-U-E-R-T-H-E-S-O-I-L. Dot com. You can reach out to me, email me there. I am on social media, Instagram at Conquer the Soil. And I'm on Twitter at Conquer the Soil. Do I post there? No, not really. But you can reach me there. I do check my DMs like every other week. So those are places that you can find me, Will. Great. Well, thank you again for being a guest on here. I'm going to be speaking in Atlanta in January. And so I definitely hope that we can cross paths whenever I'm in town and officially meet in person for the first time. So Yes, I feel like we've met in person, but we have, but we just have such yeah. good chemistry and yeah. such vibes. Hope we can uh, meet up. We must meet up. Yes, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for your energy and enthusiasm. And again, for sharing so many stories of our rich horticulture past here in America. So thank you so much for doing the work. Thank you for asking me questions that I've never answered before publicly. That is <laughs> what a challenge. What yeah, a challenge. well, that's the whole it. point. That's the whole point of the Plantastic Podcast is to make everybody a better horticulturist and really get into the weeds. So, Yes, I yeah. love it. Thank you so much, Jared. This is fun. Yes. We got to yeah. have a follow-up one day. Definitely. So again, thank you so much, Abra. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. I loved it. Yeah, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, 
make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.